It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. It says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. And a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Life is full of seasons. Now, the Bible tells us what we just read, that there are times in life where all those things will and can occur. It doesn't say God's behind all of them. It doesn't say God's the author of all of those or the God is the one that wants you to uh, experience all of those. It doesn't say anything to that effect. It's just saying life's full of different seasons. Now, we know of some seasons. You can turn with me to James chapter 1 if you like and also 1 Peter chapter 1. We know that there are times of adversity that all of us will face. We know that there are times of inconvenience. There may even be times where it looks like the devil is running loose in our lives unchecked in spite of our belief, in spite of anything and everything that we're doing according to the instruction of the word. There are times in our lives where it's going to look like we're losing. And God does not promise that there won't be those kind of times. Nowhere does the Bible say, trust God and everything will always work out right. But the Bible does teach the principle that if we trust God and stand strong upon his word, that we will ultimately gain victory. Now, James talks about times of adversity. James chapter 1, my brethren, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word wanting means lacking nothing. That would have to mean receiving the end of your faith then. That would have to mean your faith brought in the victory. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. James is talking about a stand of faith. He's talking about the operation of faith, our faith in God's word, our faith in God's promise to overcome any and every situation. But notice he said, count it all joy when you're in the middle of these situations. The reason we have to count it joy is because it's not joyful. The reason you have to treat it like it's joyful is because it's not Now, James doesn't talk about praying to keep from trouble. He just talks about how to operate when you're in trouble. Wouldn't it be great if we could just say one prayer early on in our Christian life and never have any more trouble here on the earth? Now, folks, God could set the thing up. He's the one that established the world system. He's the one that came up with the plan of redemption. God could set this thing up any way he wants to. He could have worked it out in such a way that after every one of us gets saved, at the moment of salvation, we are instantly caught up into heaven to experience 
a peace and a love and a presence of God that can't be matched here on the earth. Why didn't he do that? We could make an argument that God didn't love us enough to make it work that way. But God's love is sometimes operates differently than what we think it should. God left us here on the earth to defeat the enemy by the power of his Holy Spirit within us. Well, then what's more important? The experience of defeating the enemy or being in heaven? We'll never find out who we are if we don't have the experience here on the earth that gives us knowledge of God's faithfulness to his word. Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter talking about some of the same stuff. Verse 6, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, particular time, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks over and over and over again about how important it is for us to learn how to operate and how to, uh, well, how to operate during the midst of trouble. It says the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience is something that we're supposed to have. Paul, writing the, to the Hebrews, writing the letter to the Hebrews, said that through faith and patience we inherit the promises. He didn't just say faith. Now, without question, we all work on our faith. We all gather information. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So we gather more and more and more and more and more information about God's word. And that's right. That's good. That's appropriate. And our intent, I guess everybody thinks this way. I know I've been guilty of it. Our intent is to grow in faith, gain so much information and knowledge of the word. And, and let me say right now, folks, I want to know everything about the Bible. I don't want to know just enough to get me by. I want to learn everything. There's not one part of the Bible I don't want to know about. There's not one part of the promises of God that I don't want to be completely familiar with. You feel that way too, don't you? And our intent is to grow in knowledge. Thank God we can't. But to grow in so much knowledge so that our faith becomes strong. But folks, strength isn't just created by knowledge. Strength is created by the exercise of knowledge in the middle of trouble. Now, no trouble is comfortable. No trouble is desirable. Nobody enjoys trouble. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, my, I feel terrible today. Hallelujah. We may come to that place in the day. We may wake up and say, man, I feel terrible or think I feel terrible. So what should I do? Then start praising God for healing or health. But the reality is simply this. Character is built in tough times. It's not built into our lives when we're comfortable. Character is built by adversity. You've just figured this is not going to be a hoop and holler shouting service, haven't you? Now, what's more important, folks? 
us having all the things that we want to have here on the earth to make our lives comfortable or to develop the character of God. When I look at my kids and, and make plans for, in the past and, and even now, make plans for what I want them to have, I want them to, to not miss out on anything good. I want to give them more than, well, dear Lord, that's happened a long time ago. I want to give them more than I ever had. My kids started out with more than I ever had. And I don't want anything to be denied them that's good and right and good for them, profitable for them. But folks, under no circumstances am I willing to provide blessings for my children at the expense of their character. I think that's one thing, one characteristic that might make us good parents, don't you? Well, over and over again, the Bible says if we know how to be good parents to our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father do the same for us? Now, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to see something here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's writing to Timothy, who he had a, a special relationship with, a closer relationship with, than, uh, than any of the rest of his followers or, or converts or well, any, anybody else, really. And notice what he told him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. He says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, that means teaching, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, and my patience. Then he talks about the persecutions and everything that uh, Timothy had experienced with him and knows about and so forth. Did you notice in verse 10, long-suffering and patience are both listed? Now, if you ask people the definition of either one, long-suffering or patience, they'll usually give you the other word as a definition or a description. But folks, long-suffering and patience are not the same. They're not the same. You may recall in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, writes to the churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia. And he said, but the fruit of the Spirit, well, that's character. He's not talking about power. He's talking about character. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faith, really faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. Notice the fruit of the Spirit is not patience. It's long-suffering. Now, there are two specific words that are used in the Greek. Both of those words are right here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And they're pretty faithfully translated I think the word long-suffering is in the New Testament 14 times. The word patience, the Greek word that's translated patience is in the New Testament 31 times. And with very few ex uh, exceptions is there a crossover. Meaning of the 14 times that long-suffering is used, uh, the Greek word translated long-suffering is used in the New Testament. There's only one or two that substitutes patience for it, for that word. And the same is true for the word patience. They're two separate words. They're two separate, uh, they convey, those words convey two separate thoughts and meanings. Now, the word patience is the one we're much more familiar with. And again, for the very reason uh, that we just read James chapter 1, man, that's a go-to passage of Scripture 
when we're in trouble to remind us of what to do and how to handle things. That word patience means to be cheerfully constant. To be cheerfully constant. Unmoved, unchanging, but to hold fast and stand your ground. But the word long-suffering goes a little bit further than that. The word long-suffering means forbearance. It really means this. It means not changing no matter what. It means unchangeable. It means sticking something out no matter what. And that's what the Bible says a part of the fruit of the Spirit is. Now, I don't believe there are nine fruits of the Spirit. I believe there is one fruit of the Spirit, which is love, which has eight other characteristics. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. It's kind of like an orange. You peel one orange and there's a lot of sections to it. I think that's how the fruit of the Spirit is. And one of the characteristics that the Holy Ghost through the Apostle Paul tells us would be, will be, and or should be developed in us is an unwillingness to be moved. To stick to something no matter what. No matter what. Now I want to bring your attention to two people that the Bible tells us about in discussing this subject. First one I want to talk to you about is Joseph. Beginning in Genesis chapter 37, it tells us that Joseph was 17 years old, highly favored by his father, and began to have a couple of dreams. Now, I know there's a lot of teaching and preaching about dreams in the modern-day church, and, and everything says dream big, dream big, dream big. But folks, let me suggest to you another way. Instead of dreaming big, let God give you his dreams. That way you know what you're pursuing is of him. I've had people, maybe you've had the same experience too, but I've had people throughout my adult life related to ministry and Bible school and that kind of thing, where people used as some kind of badge of honor or tried to make a badge of proof out of the fact that their dreams were so outlandish that nobody understood them. But I found that every dream God gives you is really pretty simple. It's impossible, but pretty simple. The dreams he gives us will be dreams that we can't do alone. Because he certainly doesn't, under any circumstances, want to be excluded from that which we give our lives to. So here we see that, uh, that Joseph begins to have dreams. Now, the Bible already said, tells us beforehand that his father loved Joseph more than his other brothers and treated him differently. He gave him a coat that the others didn't have. It was a sign and... and a signal to his brothers that Joseph was the favorite. And Joseph, as a young boy, was a little bit of a tattletale. It tells us that Joseph would report to his father the bad stuff that his brothers were doing. I'm sure that made the rest of the group happy. 
Now, we can spiritualize it and say that Joseph kept his father informed because he didn't want anything to do with bad stuff. But that's really not what the Bible says. It says that Joseph told on his brothers. Well, that's not really a problem when we recognize it as a function of youth, I guess. But you remember the dreams that Joseph was given. The first dream he had was when they were all in the field gathering wheat and each one gathered their own sheaf of wheat and all of his brothers' wheat shafts, sheaves, wheat, I don't know, what is that? I'm not a wheat farmer, I don't know about that. But they all bowed down before him. Well, they understood exactly what he was saying the dream was about. They asked, so we're supposed to bow down and you're supposed to rule over us? They understood exactly what the meaning of the dream was. Then he had another dream about the stars, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The stars represented his brother, the sun, and the moon represented his parents. And they all bowed down to him. Well, Joseph was foolish enough to tell everybody what his dreams were. How is his brothers and his mother and father supposed to react to that? What was he going for in telling them about these dreams? The only answer I can come up with, folks, is if he hadn't told, maybe we wouldn't have record of what was going on. Well, they go out, his brothers go out and take care of the sheep, and they took the sheep a long way away to find pasture. And so Joseph, at the direction of his father, goes looking for him. He finds them. They see him coming from a long way off. And this dream revelation has created such ill will among his brothers that they began to take, make plans to kill him. Now, folks, my brothers made me mad a lot of times. But I never really seriously considered killing him. And as a young boy, what I dreamed was just a fantasy. I didn't really plan to kill him. Well, you know the story, how that one of his brothers said, let's don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit somewhere. Well, the end result of that would have been that he died. I guess he's just looking to keep them from being directly responsible by cutting his throat or whatever. Well, as he's in this pit, and the Bible tells us later on in the story that the brothers recognized and remembered the anguish of his soul when he was in this pit. Now, that phrase, the anguish of his soul, that's used later on in about Genesis 47, somewhere around there. The anguish of his soul, that word anguish literally means despair, total despair. He was begging his brothers to let him out. He was doing everything. He was crying and, and was so destroyed emotionally by this thing. That's one of the characteristics or one of the parts of this event that they remembered the most clearly. Well, there's a traveling caravan that comes by and Judah comes up with the idea, one of his brothers, one of his older brothers, Judah comes up with the idea of selling him. So they sold him into the caravan the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver now I'm not sure what his brothers would have expected Joseph's future to be 
they would certainly understand that it would include slavery. Would he ever be free again? There'd be no way to know, no way for them to know. So they're sentencing him to what they expect, what anybody, I guess, would expect to be the hardest of lives. All because he dreamed a dream. And one of the things that they said about throwing him in the pit was let's see what happens to his dreams. Well, you know the rest of the story. He's uh, about 17 years old or so when he's sold into slavery. He's taken to Egypt and he's purchased, bought on the slave market by a very influential man, a captain of the Pharaoh's guards. His name is Potiphar. Potiphar puts him to work. Somehow or another, we don't know how quickly this happened, but somehow or another, he comes into the place where Potiphar is so aware of the favor of God that's on him, whether he knew it was the favor of God or not, he certainly saw something special about Joseph to the degree that over time, and it would have to be over time, this couldn't have happened instantly. Nobody would have done this right away. But in the process of time, he put him in a position to make him ruler of the house. The Bible says his oversight and management of, Pharaoh, of Potiphar's house was so complete that Potiphar didn't even know what he had anymore and didn't even try to keep up. That indicates explicit trust. He trusted Joseph not to steal anything that he had to such a degree that he didn't try to even keep up with whether or not it was taking place. Well, here comes trouble in the form of Potiphar's wife. And she begins to try to entice him. She's trying to seduce this kid. I guess everybody saw in Joseph something special. Now, at this point, he would have had to have been late teens, maybe 20, 21 years old, something like that. We don't know for sure. But the Bible says that she tried to get him to have sex with her. Day after day after day after day after day. Joseph resisted. He resisted by saying he couldn't sin against his master, Potiphar. Now, folks, everything about Egypt in that day was about honor and position and rank in society. And so for Potiphar to be the important person that he was and a captain of the king's guard, he's not going to have some ugly wife. Because marriages were not a matter of love, falling in love with somebody in those days. The one you fell in love with in their society, the one you fell in love with, you kept as a mistress. But the wife had to be a showpiece. Maybe that has something to do with why she's trying to get Joseph to take her to bed. I don't know. But the idea or the possibility of Potiphar's wife letting herself go couldn't have happened because she no longer then would have been a, a favorable representation of Potiphar himself. I'm trying to get across to you 
that the one that's tempting this 18, 19, 20-year-old boy, who are a little hyperactive at that age anyway, she was not some ugly woman. But he held his ground. He did what was right. The Bible doesn't tell us that he had a girlfriend. And so he had no need of giving in to Potiphar's wife. It doesn't tell us anything like that. He just did what was right because it was right. Which I believe should be a characteristic of everybody that the favor of God is on. Well, you remember the story. She tries to entice him. And he has to run away from her and leaves his coat behind. She then tells a story and lies about it. She says that he tried to force himself on her. And nothing could be further from the truth. So Potiphar got angry. We don't know if his anger was directed at Joseph because he believed his wife's story. Or if his anger was directed at his wife. Because he believed Joseph to be a different sort of person than somebody that that wouldn't do what she said. Now you might say, why would that make him angry? Because now he's got to do something and punish Joseph. Even though he may not have believed the story. He may have known the story wasn't true. But because the story was out. In order to keep from bringing shame on his family. He has to punish Joseph. Well, time goes by. We don't know how long. But time goes by, and Joseph finds favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. And so he winds up running the prison, just like he ran Potiphar's house. What he's managing and overseeing is a little different than when he was with Potiphar. But he begins to run everything that's going on in the prison. And you remember that there came a point in time where, the, where, where Pharaoh threw in jail his butler and his banker. And after they were there for some period of time, again, we don't know how long, but after they were there for some period of time, they both dreamed a dream, apparently the same night. And they were troubled by the dream. They felt like the dream had meaning, but they didn't know what the meaning was. Here's Joseph's association again with dreams. And he interprets the dream. He interprets that within three days, the butler, the cupbearer, would be restored to Pharaoh's house. But within three days, the baker would be killed, have his head cut off. And it worked out just exactly the way that he said it would, just as he interpreted the dream. He had asked the butler, no point in asking the baker, he's going to die. But he asked the butler to remember him when he was in prison. That must mean that he says, I'm not guilty of anything. I'm innocent here in prison. See what you can do to help me. But the butler forgets about him. Until two years later, it tells us two full years went by. Two years later, Pharaoh dreams a dream. You remember the dream? Actually, he dreams the same thing twice just with different uh, pieces of the puzzle. The first dream, it tells us about the seven fat cows that come out of the river. 
and then seven lean cows that eat up the fat cows. Then he has another part of the dream where it indicates the same thing. And, and nobody, Pharaoh calls, he realizes the same thing the butler and the baker did. This dream means something, but I don't know what it, what it means. So he calls all of his magicians, all of his advisors. Nobody can interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And then the butler remembers Joseph. They called for Joseph. They cleaned him up. He stands before Pharaoh and interprets the dream. He says it's God showing him. And because he gave him the dream twice, it would surely come to pass. He shows him that there would be seven years of plenty, which, were eaten, which would be eaten up by the seven years of famine. And Joseph has a plan. God gives him a plan right there on the spot of how to handle the, the crops, the grain, and so forth during the seven years of plenty so that they could survive the famine. And it turned out just the way Joseph said. But Pharaoh instantly says, who's better to manage this than this guy? What a plan. Folks, when God gives you the plans, it's easy to recognize the value of them to them or in them. It's where we make our own plans that things get gummed up. One thing I like about Moses, Moses went on the mountaintop with God and stayed until he got all the information he needed. He didn't just find out that God wanted him to make a tabernacle. He stayed long enough to get God's plans. God will establish not only your purpose, but he'll show you a plan to bring it about. Well, the Bible says Joseph was 30 when Pharaoh made him prime minister. He gave him the rule of the kingdom so that only Pharaoh himself was above Joseph. Joseph becomes the second most important person in all of Egypt, which was the great power of the day, the great superpower of the world. And the famine was so severe after the first seven years where Joseph is stockpiling 20% of everything along with instructing people in the uh, uh, different cities to stockpile grain for them and, and uh, the coming famine too. Joseph is managing the entirety of the country during those seven years. Seven years of plenty before the famine begins. Well, you remember the story how that the famine was so severe that his brothers were sent by his father into Egypt to buy grain. Everybody knows that Egypt is the only one during the famine that has anything. So it solidifies Egypt's position and increases Egypt's position as the superpower. They're the only ones that can sustain the world, and they did. Well, you remember how the story went about the brothers coming down to buy grain. Joseph recognized them immediately. They didn't know who he was. And he winds up playing games with them, accusing them to be, of being spies, and then winds up playing games with them until ultimately his father and all of the family, 70 souls in all, came down into Egypt to live there. 
Now there's a verse of scripture that I want you to see. It's, uh, I think it's in Genesis chapter 41. No, no, it's not. I didn't mark this. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Let me cover a couple of things to give some details of uh, what I didn't say before. In Genesis 42, verse 9, when his brothers first come down to buy grain from him, it says in verse 9, Genesis 42, 9, it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. Somewhere along the way, the dreams have not been his focal point. And you would expect that they wouldn't. He begins to rule in Egypt. We don't have any record in Potiphar's house or in the jail that he was committed to, that he's still holding fast to his dreams in any way whatsoever. It seems rather, since nothing is said by the Bible about Joseph telling anybody else, either in Potiphar's house or in jail, that he's not telling his dreams any longer. Now, does that mean he forgot his dreams? Well, it seems to me that it would indicate that he put those things on the back burner. And as all dreams should be, he committed them to the Lord to bring them to pass, if at all. I'm sure there were a lot of places, a lot of times, where Joseph thought back to those dreams and said to himself, my goodness, how in the world can that ever be? Genesis chapter 45 when he reveals himself to his brothers. Verse 5, it says, Now therefore, he's talking to his brothers, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Somewhere along the way, and and Joseph's just, um, well, at this time, they're two years into the famine. So that means seven years of plenty and two years of famine. Joseph is 39 years old. He's 30 when he starts, and the famine took place right away. Then he'd be 39 years old. If the famine delayed a little bit, if there was a year between the time that he was set in place and the famine starts, and we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other about that, then he would be about 40, maybe 41 or so years old. Still a young man. 40 and 41 looks a lot younger to me now than it used to. How about you? But he sees the purpose. And folks, this is so important. He sees the purpose in the things he's experienced. Did he enjoy any of those experiences? No. He didn't enjoy being taken captive and thrown in the pit by his brothers. He certainly wouldn't have enjoyed being sold to the Ishmaelites, although he may have recognized that. He may have heard his brothers talking about killing him, so he may have recognized that as better than the alternative. There may have been good days in Potiphar's house, but I'm sure those good days were overshadowed by what Potiphar's wife did to cause him to be thrown in jail. I'm sure there were good days or good-ish days in prison when he was in charge of everything but he's still in prison 
But he comes to the realization somewhere. And, and I have to imagine that it's after he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. Then things may start making sense to him. Then things might start taking shape. But even at that, he only remembered the dreams when his brothers came. Some nine or so years later. But he comes to the realization of why things happened the way they did. Now, folks, one of the things that Pharaoh said when he put him in charge, and again, Joseph just interpreted the king's dreams, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine will be so severe that if they don't make provision, they won't survive. It was only after his brothers came and bowed down before him to buy grain that he remembered the dreams. But when he was made prime minister of Egypt, second in command in Egypt, there had to have been times where he was alone with his thoughts in, in the night where he looked back and recognized how God had seen him through and what an impossible route he took to get to the place of position of honor that he was in. Sometimes we can't see the value of the trouble we're in when we're in the middle of it. But folks, there is value. Or we create value. For every adversity that we experience, if we rely on the word and stand on the word to come through. It's the word of God. It's the application of the word of God. The putting in practice of the word of God that gives value to the things that we despise about our circumstance. And we have to be big picture people when it comes to the trouble we find ourselves in. We have to be big picture people or we won't see the purpose in it. Even though the purpose may be very great. Joseph comes to that place. Well, Joseph starts to reign in Egypt when he's 30 years old, the Bible says. So that means from the time that he dreamed his dreams at 17 to the time that he was in Pharaoh, uh, became Pharaoh's right-hand man, 13 years have gone by. Would you have held on to a dream for 13 years? And at the end of those 13 years, just before he comes before Pharaoh, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He spent 13 years in the place that he's gotten to is prison. It might not look like God was at work. But in every place, he found favor because he stuck to what was right. If anybody had a right to complain to God about their situation and turn against God, Joseph would have been it. But he didn't. He did the same thing, the right thing, no matter where he was. The Bible says that Joseph reigned in Egypt until his death, and he died at 110 years of age. So he spent 80 years serving Pharaohs. And by the time he died, it wasn't the same Pharaoh that he started with. But he kept a position longer 
than anybody else. Because God created it for him. Same thing could be said. We won't take the time to look at it. Same thing could be said about Daniel. You remember Daniel's story. Daniel and the three Hebrew children. That were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. They were schooled and tutored in in, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's house. The king's house. The palace. But remember that they went to the, the schoolmaster and they requested, the four of them, Daniel and the three others, they requested that they not be forced to break the dietary laws of the old covenant. And the schoolmaster was concerned because he thought, if I don't feed them as well as, as everybody else, then the king's going to see that there's a difference in them. So Daniel proposes, let's try it for a short period of time. And if it looks to you like we're doing more poorly than the others, then we'll go back to what you provide for us. And the Bible says because they put God first, they thrived. They looked healthier than everybody else. Well, Daniel comes to a place of prominence in the Babylonian kingdom. But then the Babylonians are overtaken by the Assyrians. And the Bible tells us that there was an occasion where Nebuchadnezzar's son, who was king in his place, brought the vessels of the temple, the vessels of gold, the cups of gold and so forth, that were in the temple, reserved for the use of God and used those for a big fancy party that he and the rest of the wicked people had. And there came a hand, a hand appeared, out of nowhere and wrote something on the wall now folks I don't know about you but that would indicate to me that God interrupted their party I mean what do you do you party and drink all night until you get to the place where a hand appears and writes on the wall (laughs) so the new king brings everybody he can in to interpret it it's a language he doesn't know it's a language nobody knows and nobody can bring any help to him and one of his wives said, hey, remember this guy, Daniel, that served your father. And she said of him, now, with all the wickedness and and everything else that's going on, she says of him that he has an excellent spirit in him. Well, where did that excellent spirit develop? It certainly has to be related to him putting the law of Moses first and rejecting the king's table. In other words, just like Joseph, Daniel's character was developed in adversity. Well, Daniel interprets the dream, or not the dream, but the writing on the wall, and tells just exactly how things are going to happen. And they do. They go just like God revealed to him, and just like he told Pharaoh. Now, I want you to look with me to to Matthew chapter 7. There's so many more things that we could talk about, but for the sake of time, we really can't go into it. Beginning in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which has built his house upon a rock. So the rock is the word of God. The sayings that Jesus is giving them has to be the word of God, right? 
So he's saying, whosoever builds their house on the, the rock, meaning the word. He said, and the rain descended and the floods came and that winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock or founded upon the word. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, same rain. And the floods came, same floods. And the winds blew, same winds. And beat upon that house and it fell and it was great and great was the fall of it. Now, folks, I want you to see the key elements, the key, three things that he identifies about the storm. Same storm came to both guys. It wasn't a greater storm or a stronger storm or a worse storm against the guy who didn't build his house on the word. Same storm. And, of course, we understand that building your house on the sand means to ignore the value of God's word in your life. To not give it a place of prominence or a place of priority. And that will bring destruction. There's no question about it. It'll bring destruction. Winds, floods, and rain, circumstances of this life, will cause that house to fall. But folks, I would submit something else to you here too. We know that part's true and we want to hold on to that truth. But there's another meaning here too. The wind is often talked about as the work of the Holy Ghost. The wind is typified or illustrated. The wind illustrates the Holy Ghost himself. Many places in scripture. The rain is spoken of as from heaven. And a blessing of God. And the floods. Are spoken of as the blessings of God in several places. Isaiah 59 verse 19. Says when the enemy shall come in. Like a flood, the, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Now, a lot of people read that this way, and it can be read both ways. The language doesn't help us out at all. Some people read it this way. When the enemy comes in like a flood, then the Lord raises up a standard against him. But it can also be read, same correct translation could change the meaning of this. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up a standard against him. So the wind, the rain, and the flood can all be blessings of God and are identified as such by the scripture. Let me show you somebody that fell because of their own prosperity, because of their own blessing. Turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. David is approaching death. And so at the instruction of, of the Lord, he chooses Solomon to follow him, to be king of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. The temple hadn't been built. That'll be part of the work that Solomon brings to pass. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And a thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer unto that altar. And Gibeon, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son 
to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither have you asked for riches, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but has asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words, though I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Solomon had it all. He had every bit of everything that you could want. And the Bible, over the next several chapters, the Bible goes into great detail about Solomon building the temple of the Lord. He built his own house too. Great and imposing structures. It talks about how that the, the blessing of God at the, de- the dedication of the temple. How that the blessing of God, the glory of God came and filled the temple. It goes on to tell us about his wealth. Turn with me to chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. It tells us about the queen of Sheba coming down from Egypt and she saw such splendor and such wealth the Bible says that Solomon exceeded the wealth of all other kings in the world she was so blown away that things were even more extravagant than she had heard rumors of 1 Kings 10 verse 23 so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Then they talk about the taxes that are brought to Solomon and and the, the incredible wealth, spectacular wealth that's associated with that. Chapter 11. After all of this, after the greatest wisdom of anybody, except Jesus said his wisdom was greater, outside of that, the greatest wisdom of anybody on the face of the earth ever You'd think that 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 wisdom, that understanding, and the result of it, the wealth and the blessings of God, and the peace that Israel enjoyed for the 40 years of his reign. You'd think that would be enough to hold somebody steady, wouldn't you? How many of us have ever thought, man, if we just had a little piece of that, we'd be able to, to do right, stay right, And be the right people. Chapter 11 verse 1. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites. Amorites. Edomites. Zidonians. And Hittites. 
of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses. That means most of his wives, his marriages were politically arranged to secure peace treaties with other nations. But still 700 wives. I'm not sure there were 700 countries to make political marriages with. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. John Osteen used to say he had 700 wives and 300 cucumber vines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem and for Molech the abomination of the children of Ammon and likewise did he all did he for all his strange wives which burned incense and sacrificed unto their gods now you got Joseph who had every reason from the natural from the flesh from the physical standpoint to lose heart regarding God's purpose and plan for his life. But whether it was as a slave or in prison or elevated to be the second in command in Egypt, he kept himself in the right place. He did what was right because it was right. He walked before the Lord and it created a presence of God in him and on him that nobody had seen from anybody else or anywhere else. And it drew people to him. Even the ones that were supposed to have rule and reign over him. It drew people to him to such a degree. That he rose to the top in every circumstance. In every place that he was. Now compare that to Solomon. That's, Joseph's a great example of building his house on the rock. Compare that to Solomon. Who had everything. The best the finest in, in multiplied by a factor that we can't even imagine. And he wound up in a place where his, his house fell. He went from building his house on the rock and the success that it brought him to somewhere along the way. He had to think. He had to come to the place and it started with a single thought. He came to the place where he thought, even though God said to Israel, don't take women of these tribes, these nations, it'll be all right for me. What else would cause him to do so? He had to think that God would give him a pass. But folks, God's word is his word. Now, we love to claim the, the scriptures that promise us victory, abundance, 
things that make our life easy and simple and good. And there's not a thing wrong with that. But somewhere along the way, Solomon traded his character for obedience to God. Now, folks, as I said, we like to believe the results and the good things that happen by putting God's word in practice. And that's right. We're supposed to. That's part of walking in victory. That's part of taking the place of who we are in Christ. But the word of God is also true. It's still the word of God that says if we don't take the position in the place of faith from the word of God that we should, that destruction follows. That's the word of God too. Not just blessing of obedience or obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curse. That's the word of God too. Somehow or another, Solomon's character, which caused him to ask for understanding and wisdom. And there's only, the only thing that would cause him to take that place and make that request would be right character. But somewhere along the way, Solomon traded his character for whatever pleasure he thought he could derive from all these wives. And he ended his 40 years of reign as a failure. Not politically. Politically, everything on the outside looked good, looked right. It wasn't like a war started against Solomon. He reigned in 40 years of peace, but inside where you couldn't see. Solomon's house fell. What should we say to these things? The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. To stick to what you know is right, what you know is good, and what the Bible teaches us, no matter what. I know a lot of people, I, I did this, I'm guilty of this. When I first found out about God honoring His Word and the ability to use faith as a tool, Jesus called it a servant. Jesus simply said, faith will serve you. And of course, we know now that's true because of the position of dominion that God has given man in the earth. I found out that God would provide for us. And I was in such financial straits that that had such a pull and such a draw for me. You mean God will provide all my needs? You mean he really meant it when he said that he would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? And so I started off just believing God for pennies. I had nothing, so getting anything, believing for anything was a giant step for me. And looking back, I wasn't going after God. I wasn't trying to establish a relationship with God. I was just trying to get my bills paid. I think a lot of people start that way. People may start that way if they're fighting sickness in their bodies. And God wasn't mad at me. God didn't say, no, because you don't want me. You just want blessings and money and finances. He didn't get mad and didn't withhold, didn't do anything like that. But for me, and I think a lot of people do this, a lot of us chase after the blessings 
instead of the one that brings the blessings. But because my heart was right, and I'm sure the same has been for you too. I sure hope so at least. Because our heart was right, we found the blessings. We obtained the blessings, but we found the giver of blessings. I found a relationship with God that I didn't know I could have. I found a relationship with God that went beyond the material and monetary blessings that I needed and that I received. Now it's up to me because character is built on adversity. Now it's up to me and you too to develop character more fully and when character comes to the place I don't know that we ever come to the end of it I don't know if we ever get to the place where you can't grow in character anymore seems like that's a never ending pursuit but along the way we come to the place where the character that's built into us by the word supersedes even the desire for blessings and the things that we need in this life Character is built in adversity. Because God wants you to develop patience, which really has more to do with behavior in trouble. Maintain a cheerful constancy as a part of this fruit of the Spirit called long-suffering that holds you steady no matter what. This place of commitment where you say no matter what. Solomon said in Proverbs, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Being strong is more important to me now than the material blessings, the physical blessings, or anything else. Because if we can develop that long suffering, we can really come to the place where Paul said, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. I've learned to be content. It's your character that will hold you steady. Not your knowledge of healing or finance or prosperity or anything else. It's your character that holds you steady. So without developing character, we can never come to the place of long-suffering that the Bible says is a part of the life of God in us. Amen. Amen. Well, these communion elements represents how all in Jesus was for us. This morning, I'd like for us to judge our hearts, judge our own heart. You judge yours, I'll judge mine. But I would encourage you to judge your own heart as to whether or not you're all in for him. Gentlemen, would you come?
And every eye beholds the one Our hearts were run deserving of With a grace so glorious Crowned in glory to glory Worthy is the Lord of all the glory Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 11. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Father in Jesus name we thank you for what this bread represents. The flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that Jesus took stripes upon his back and that by his stripes we are healed. Father, we commit ourselves to you to glorify you in body and in spirit because they both belong to you. As we receive this bread, Father, we receive our healing in Jesus' name. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we thank you for what this cup represents. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that this blood has made us righteous. We thank you, Father, for your presence within us. We thank you, Father, that we are in him, able to stand before you without any sense of guilt or shame, for we truly have been born into the family of God. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand, please. Let's just lift our hands and thank God for being such a good Heavenly Father. We love you, Father. We thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that your eyes are wide open to the situations we're in. We thank you that you're watching over your word to perform it in our lives. We thank you, Father, that we have victory in everything spiritually, physically, and even concerning our mind and our emotions. We thank you, Father, for complete and total victory and for the strength of character that your word brings to us. In Jesus' precious name, can you agree with that prayer? Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you so much for being a part of us, for being with us this morning. Come back and be part of Healing School tonight if you can, and you're dismissed.